Welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, Joe Hamia. And me, James Walton. And we've got a real treat for you today. For the first time ever, we are interviewing an actual Booker Prize winner, Marlon James, who in 2015 became the first ever Jamaican writer to win the prize, which he did with the extraordinary A Brief History of Seven Killings. Despite its title, though, it's not so brief <laughs> at 700 pages uh, and with much, much more than seven killings. No, indeed. Um, before we play the interview, which, uh, full disclosure, we've already recorded, we're going to set the scene a bit, uh, beginning with the 2015 shortlist. As well as a brief history, the shortlist included Tom McCarthy's Saturn Island, uh, Sanjeev Sahur's The Year of the Runaways, and uh, the book Least Like a Brief History, uh, Anne Tyler's A Spool of Blue Thread, another of her uh, terrific, sharp-eyed but tender portrayals of a middle-class family in Baltimore. Uh, as you'll hear Marlon James saying, though, the big favourite that year was Hanya Yanagihara's famously bleak A Little Life. Oh, it's just a quick, a quick anecdote on that. Uh, I remember when that was A Little Life mania was at its height. I was on holiday with quite a big group of quite bookish people, yeah. all of whom read it one by one. And all of, as soon as they finished it, they, they weren't going to the pub that night. Oh, God, it ruins <laughs> the holiday, doesn't it, <laughs> yeah, reading well, so, that so, book? Hey, coming out for a drink? No, no I don't think so. I think, I'll just, I think I'll just go to bed if that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, James, do you want to give us a summary of A Brief History of Seven Killings? Yeah, I will. It opens in Jamaica in the mid-1970s when the country finds itself involved in the Cold War. Uh, following the election of, as Prime Minister, of Michael Manley, who is the socialist leader of the People's National Party, PNP. And naturally his friendship with Fidel Castro in Cuba, much alarmed the Americans, who backed the Conservative Jamaican Labour Party, as it's rather confusingly named for a British audience, the Conservative Party there is the Labour Party, led by Edward Siega. Meanwhile, the gangs in the shanty towns in Kingston also took sides in the parties, leading to an outbreak of huge violence that even extended to an assassination attempt on the island's most famous citizen, who at that time was generally thought to be untouchable, and then he, Bob Marley. Although, in fact, like the key politicians of the time, he's not named in the novel and is referred to only as the singer. Anyway, both the gang warfare and the assassination attempt are extremely vividly chronicled in the book, as is what happened next, which is that some of the leading Jamaican gangsters moved to New York, where they played a central role in bringing the crack epidemic to the mostly black inner cities. And uh, it's a big book in every way, uh, as you say, 700 pages. Uh, list at the beginning uh, of its characters runs to more than 70. Mm. It's also narrated by a, around a dozen different narrators, CIA operatives, journalists, and plenty of gangsters, many of them writing in Jamaican patois. And some of whom, like uh, Marlon James, in fact, uh, are gay. Indeed, he has said that one of the reasons he left Jamaica to study and then teach at American universities was because of the less-than-gay-friendly attitudes he'd encountered in his life on the island. And then the only other things I think you might need to know for this interview uh, include that since winning the Booker, Marlon James has been at work on perhaps an even more ambitious project, uh, a sort of fantasy trilogy set in medieval Africa, drawing heavily on both folklore and often overlooked history. Uh, he also refers at one point here to Doug, which is Douglas Stewart, author of Shuggy Bane. But as this is the Booker Prize podcast, we started with some suitably Booker-related questions. Warm welcome to you, Marlon. Thanks so much for doing this. We're, we're delighted sure. to have you. So what was it like when you were long-listed? If I remember, I just kind of went on with things because I didn't want to put, I didn't want to think about it too much. Uh, I didn't want to like get my hopes up or jinx it or anything like that. And I think I was also, when I, I think I was in Edinburgh, actually. Can I, can I ask how you heard the news? Who told you? 
I think I read it in the Jamaican newspaper actually online. Oh my god! So, yeah. <laughs> so I think they knew before me. And then, so your not your hopes not getting up too much at this stage, and then you get shortlisted. I was slightly less surprised the shortlist. I thought <laughs> that the longlist is the real the longlist is the real hard one, <laughs> and the shortlist was six books. I mean, I wasn't as surprised about that, but I certainly didn't think I was going to win. Why not? I don't know. I just didn't think so. Um, <laughs> favorite, and I just sort of. You know, I guess, I don't know, maybe some sort of imposter syndrome. I just, I, I just really put it to the back of my head. Did, did you read the other books on the shortlist? Well, Tom McCarthy, because I'm a huge uh, McCarthy fan. And um, San, Sanjeev's book, Year of the Runaways, I'd read. Chigozi's book. I think those are the three that I've read, I haven't read at the time. It strikes me as a slightly weird bit, that bit where you do events and things together, don't you, when you're all shortlisted? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so it must be like almost being on like a reality TV show in the sense that you're yes. you're comrades, but you're also rivals. <laughs> yeah, well, have to pretend to be friends. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And how did um, that how did that pretending go? Got along really well, and I think um, you know uh, all of us have read at least a few or one or two of each other's books. Um, so I think by that time, it really. For us, it didn't really matter who won because we just we're just such admirers of each other's work. Is that, is that really true, though, <laughs> James? <laughs> so just seems quite sort of high minded that you'd, nobody really minded who won. There must there was there no one who sort of broke ranks and was obviously ambitious. Well, I guess because nobody really wanted to be disappointed or nobody wanted to get their hopes up or you know, I mean, so much of it is I guess a matter of opinion. I mean, I think. There was a clear favorite, and I think the media declared a clear favorite. Um, you know, which was a little life. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think um, there's a lot of people. I think a lot of people just sort of assumed it was was going to win. I I really want to know what happened when you did win. Did you party? Did you go out? Oh man, what didn't I do? <laughs> Uh, there's a really famous question that used to get asked that's dropped out of fashion, but uh, what did you do with the prize money? I saved it because I'm smart. Ah. <laughs> Investments or just, just nah, in a personal account? I just have it in the bank. So actually, that's not totally true. Somebody asked, somebody said I should buy an outrageous gift to celebrate, which is the wrong thing to say to me. Mm. Uh, so I bought this lamp that's a life-size horse. <laughs> It's, it's literally like a, a, a 12 foot by 9 foot life size horse with a lampshade on the head. Why? <laughs> because I saw it and I thought, this is either the greatest thing ever or maybe the worst idea ever. And I'm like, I have to have it. What happens over the next sort of few days and weeks after you've won? It's pretty much madness. Um, the interviews start from around 6 a.m., they don't really stop until around 9 p.m. I had totally lost my voice. There's a very hilarious video of me on, on, I think, it wasn't Hard Talk. It was Channel 4's news program. There's a very hilarious interview of me where nobody understands what I'm saying because I've totally lost my voice. Um, I think everyone uh, everyone asked you sort of what you were going to do with your new platform and how you were mm. going to use all your newfound fame. But I'm really interested to know, especially eight years on, whether uh, winning prize that big changed your writing practice or your writing itself. I know you say that um, Seven Killings was sort of your FU novel. 
the novel mm-hmm. where you you set down on the page all the things you thought you couldn't before and, and broke convention, right. um, it, which is a really interesting place in your career to win. But afterwards, did mm-hmm. you feel, um, you know, freer or set back? How did that go? I don't know if I felt either. I certainly didn't feel set back mm-hmm. or I've just written another version of Brief History. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of, you know, it was basically a fantasy novel. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I didn't really feel any sort of pressure. I think because part of it too is I have, you know, I, my first novel was in an independent press and it, you know, it did well, but it was pretty small. And, um, you know, when you, I think, I don't know if it would have been different if my, if I had a debut novel win the the Booker. I don't know. Um, I don't know how, what is it for. You know, I should ask Doug. Um, how is it going? Uh, having won having won the Booker with your debut. Um, <laughs> you know, for me, it's it was um, because I've had published before and published a smaller publisher. I already knew what rock bottom felt like. So, oh, God, <laughs> that's always helpful. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, whatever happened, so the, the, the commercial prospects post Booker didn't really scare me at all, whether the next book sells a lot or doesn't sell at all, um, you know, didn't really matter because I've just been through so much of that. For me also, I realized that one way to stay grounded when you're in the middle of any type of hype is to just start writing the next book. Yeah. So, um, I had actually started thinking of the next book from before Brief History was even published, before it even came out. So I was so busy already in a world, and this was a medieval African fantasy world so far removed from the present day that that's kind of where my head was. But is, is there, um, there, must, there must be authors who just really just abandon themselves, just relish it, just think this is great, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm famous now, I'm just going to really love this being fated mm. everywhere. Was that a temptation or it just wasn't? I was a total, I, I was a total temptation. I totally gave into it, of course. I've never been, you know, being, and, and firstly, famous is, I don't qualify famous. I think there's, there's, you know, famous is book famous. It's not like anybody's <laughs> going to, you know, you know, invite me to the same place they invite Usain Bolt <laughs> or so on. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, being book famous certainly beats being not famous. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> and, and because for one thing, I said one thing that it what changed because of the booker, so many con- countries became curious. For one, the Commonwealth. So that's 48 countries that may not have heard of me before. Um, the book got translated in, I think, over 32 languages which wouldn't have happened otherwise. So I think that the exposure that comes and the curiosity that this prize still that this prize still creates around the world does change you in certain ways. That uh, you know um the book is the book is uh, brief history is in both Portuguese Portugal Portuguese and Brazilian Portuguese. Wow. Well, I mean quite a, quite a tricky book to translate it would seem to me. Did you get did you get people, yeah. did you get did you get sort of puzzled emails from translators not really because i think what most translators did is they just sort of translated translated it into whatever was their country's street culture mm. and um, uh, for, certainly in brazil it's like how people speak in the favelas 
and that's yeah. what they did. And I think because of that, because of street culture, because of you know whatever countries on the world, they just used that language. So I think it was actually a lot easier than people thought. And also by now, you know, I mean, everybody's heard of Bob Marley. They've heard they know some Jamaican patois. Mm. So, so yeah. usually the person who translated, the person who translated usually knew more about Jamaica than me. Um, something that I've I found really interesting is that you've said that um, you were writing more about your parents' Jamaica than than mm-hmm. yours, um, especially because both your parents were cops at one point. Although your your dad went on to become a lawyer, I was wondering yeah. how, have they read the book? What what did they make of it? Did they think it was a faithful portrayal? It's not very nice about Jamaican cops on the whole, is it? <laughs> No, but then again, my mom was a cop and wasn't very nice with Jamaican cops. Um, well, my dad passed away before the book came out, so um, he didn't get a chance to read it. My mom is, you know, she completely says that she won't, she, she, she hasn't read it because of the language, but I don't believe her. <laughs> I think she has, or she's read some, you know, she's read some of it. What's really interesting is that some of the politicians who are in the book have read it. I thought, and I thought, I thought, I really thought after writing this book that I couldn't go back to Jamaica or I'd be a marked man and so on. And so many, some of the people involved in the story have read it and they're just so disconnected from it. It's, it was really strange, very uncanny. I think in a way, even though they were part of that history, they're so disconnected from it now that either they don't recognize themselves, which is great, or <laughs> they're just, they just sort of think, a different person, a different life did that. But it was interesting because I was, when I wrote this book, I was counting on the party that comes off better to be in power when I came back to Jamaica so I could feel safe. And it's a party I criticized the most that came back in power when I went back to Jamaica. And I thought, oh my God, I'm a dead man. But then they gave me some award. And it was weird. Be- it was so weird being in a room with people. I'm like, you know, you're in the book, right? <laughs> like, which, so which, which, which part is this? I mean, you gave both of them quite a hard well, time. Well, the JLP comes off worse. Both yeah. of them were, have a pretty atrocious 70s record. Yeah. Um, in the book, I think the JLP, I don't call them the JLP, but I think I call them Jamaica National Party or something. I can't remember what I call them. But they do come off worse because Jamaica entered the Cold War and the U.S. picked which party, party they sided with, the more conservative capitalist party. And um, because of the, the conflicts between the two parties, violence exploded. And, um, and I wasn't shrink, shirking away from that. But to be in the, in, in, in the, with, among these people in these neighborhoods and so on, it was, it, you know, you know Either they read it and didn't see themselves, or they didn't read it, which both of which I'm fine with. What did Jamaica make of it? On the one hand, there must have been a lot of pride that, it, you know, when mm-hmm. first Jamaican to win the Booker Prize. On the other hand, was there any attitude of, look, we know this stuff, you know this stuff, but does the world really need to know this stuff? Maybe, you know, I didn't really pay attention to that. I'm sure it was there. Um, but I think what I heard mostly was people being relieved that we're talking about this because a lot of this stuff we talk we, we call it the veranda discussion you talk about it on the balcony on the veranda on the, on the patio far away from anybody else hearing so it's stuff we all know but it's not stuff we discuss or debate or come to terms with or hold people accountable for and i think for a lot of people this book was a chance to talk about things that are usually unspeakable 
Do, do you go back to Jamaica much now? I do actually. I was there for half a year last year, and okay. uh, just came back actually. So I'm there pr- quite a bit actually. Uh, uh, and how is the old place? You know, Jamaica. So, so this is the thing about Jamaica. I, I realize. I think a lot of people think have this idea that Jamaican and Caribbean and maybe even African communities in the diaspora tend to be more open-minded than their host countries. And it's an interesting thing to think. It's something we assume that Jamaicans in, say, New York may be more open-minded than Jamaicans in Kingston. That's actually not the case at all. What I find is the country's constantly moving ahead. Um, the immigrants, for most part, not for most part, but a lot of immigrants I come in contact with, are they hold on to the Jamaica they left behind. So oh, yeah. I've actually had more criticism from Jamaicans in the diaspora than Jamaicans in the country. Jamaican communities in a lot of Jamaican community in, say, the United Kingdom or the U.S. don't mess with me at all. You know, I'm not invited to their functions. The consulate general doesn't have me on speed dial. <laughs> and I think I think in the diaspora, there's a sense that I've aired dirty laundry. Yeah. I'm going to go on a slight tangent away from Mm -hmm. this, but Marlon, I I think some of my favourite writing is actually on your Facebook account. (laughs) And I love it. Um, Mm -hmm. I've noticed that your Twitter's gone silent, though. Which I also love. You used to like call out American Airlines and, you know, white girls in the club for for being stuffy. Why why have you chosen to stay on Facebook? I think because I'm old. Because I'm old. I... I, you know, because I, I, my rants are usually too long for Twitter. <laughs> and I hear you can just split it up. And I was like, yeah, I think, I think I'm just too old. Because, I mean, and I, know, and I know I'm old because there are times when I would say something on Facebook and the next day it's in The Guardian. Yeah. And now I'll say all sorts of stuff. And it's like, as we say in America, crickets so clearly nobody is reading facebook let's so move on to um loads of us you just mentioned cricket there can i just ask you one thing from my own oh uh, cricket uh, oh yeah just just, just very just, just, just you're desperately I reaching am, here I, james I, I, yeah. no, I'm, 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 this i'm very interested in I, I, I don't know if you are marlon but mm. so that scene right at the end of seven uh a brief history uh where um, you know there's that sort of reconnection scene in a Jamaican cafe, and one of the one of the s- symptoms of it is that there's this cricket on the telly. Mm-hmm. But the West Indian cricket is, seems to be sort of disappearing. And I, I mean, I, I, I mm. I'm, I'm I'm quite old. I think older than you. And I I I, 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 I really genuinely disorientated living in a world where the West Indies aren't brilliant at cricket because mm-hmm. I just you know they were just like gods to us growing up. Yeah. So what, what, um, is that a matter of? A personal concern or B sociological interest to you? Um, I've always disliked cricket, but I could play it. <laughs> Which is funny. Yeah, you, um, you, you realize you've just broken my heart. But okay. <laughs> you just made my day in my contrast. <laughs> I you know what though? I think I think that um I think the West Indies needs to reconsider how how they 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 introduced us to cricket i was like in when i was in high school we had three terms first term was was football second term you did track and field third term you did cricket and everybody had to do cricket which maybe yeah. why i kind of i can't do it but i don't like it because i'm still i still have the school thing in me like do it or get a c um, <laughs> but i think though that 
that my problem with Sinus Cricket goes pretty I think we're reaping a lot of stuff we sowed in the nineties. Like I, you know, to name names, yes, Brian Lara was a great cricketer. He's a fantastic player. Um did he help the team much? I don't know. And I think that um when you go back to the glory days of, you know, the Viv Richards and these guys, they're fantastic players, but they're team players. Yeah. And I think at some point, cricket players got very interested in records and very interested in adding up runs and very interested in making a Guinness World Guinness Book of World Records. But they stopped being team. It's, it's funny. Cricket almost became like football in Jamaica and football became like cricket. Because what used to be the problem with Jamaica and football is that we had all these prima donnas, we had all these stars, but nobody plays as a team. And you end up with this weird thing, Jamaica. Only Jamaicans have heard said this. They'll say the other team won, but that team played better. That makes no sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think the English But, say I, that but as if you're well. Jamaican, you understand it because <laughs> they like the dazzling show offiness. And in a weird way, some of the football have become more team like. And I think cricket sort of frayed that way. I think it became a bunch of players instead of a team. And I think we're still we're still reaping the benefits of that. Uh, I want to turn us to uh, a topic that actually is probably quite topical because of the SAG writer's strike mm-hmm. happening at the moment. Uh, I am I... on strike, but I have written an original series for HBO. Oh, OK. Is that, Can is you this, tell us about that? This is Get, sure, Millie, it's Get called, Millie Black, I think, yeah. It's Get Millie Black. It's a, it's a co-production of HBO and Channel 4. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's yeah, we've actually finished filming. It's a, a story about a Jamaican who, you know, her, you know, she she left for London at nine, and she basically, you know, her teenage years, adult years in London. She worked. She used to be at Scotland Yard. She left with a dark cloud under her name and came back to Jamaica, and ends up being sort of embroiled in a case that takes her right back to the UK she left behind. So it's mm-hmm. a sort of a Jamaican UK production and um, we finished filming already. We've actually finished filming and we're just doing the whole usual edit and we don't like this edit, let's do that edit and and all this, all the, all the, the, the little things you have to do to make a TV show a TV show. That's kind of what we're doing right now. Yeah. But yeah, it's not based on anything. It was an original story that I wrote. Can I, can I ask how screenwriting compares to novel writing? Um, screenwriting, um, novel writing is a pleasure. Mm. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> By contrast, comma. yeah. Do characters stay with you? I mean, you, you're, it seems quite vivid the process you go through in, in mm-hmm. having favorites. It's almost, you know, falling in love with them. You know, when you yeah. finish a relationship, you, you think about the person you left for months after. Sometimes, a lot of times, I don't. I think one of the reasons why my books are full of all but one are pretty long Mm -hmm. is that they're long because I can't let go. Mm -hmm. And um, particularly the brief history where I kept jumping every decade on Mac, but what are they doing in this decade? (laughs) Um, So I do think when I end a book is when I'm ready to let go. So I don't necessarily, I don't think I've thought about the afterlives of characters. Um, Not much. I'm not driven by the idea of sequels, Mm -hmm. um, for example, because I think, the reason why my books are long is that I want to spend, you know, spend as much time as I can to get the full story. And sometimes, you know, it's it's 
I'm at the end. Well, I always have a problem ending novels. Like, you know, A Brief History, I went on for a good 20 pages before I realized, dude, this book ended 20 pages ago. Yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't even really end. It kind of just stops. It stops on a ah, question, Yeah, and fact. that's the thing. I remember, yeah, it does. It does stop. It doesn't end. It just stops. Yeah. Because I think a story like that just, yeah, it just stops. So, uh, so talking of long books, I listened to a podcast you did where you were talking about your 19-year-old students just basically not getting on with long books. So when you were teaching them Steinbeck, mm-hmm. you'd steer clear of, mm-hmm. grapes of Grapes of Wrath and so on. Um, do, 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 I mean, does that give you pause? Do you think my, my book's going to be too long for my kind of student? People I know is I don't know. I mean, most of the times I teach short books because it just gets to just get us through the semester. Yeah. And I'd rather I'd rather them read them read you know um six short books than two long ones. Um not, not I, and it's not a, a judgment call or a taste call on on the books. But I think we I think um it's weird. We go back and forth, don't we? Because um at one point because of instant messengers so everybody was worried about these kids not reading long stuff. And then, you know, online you had sites like Pitchfork that went into like long reviews. And I go, oh, but they do read that. All, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of millennials and stuff have a Substack account. Yeah. So there is a place for long reading. But then we have TikTok and we have BookTok, hmm. which I'm not an enemy of at all. But I understand the concerns that are these things, are these things encouraging reading or is it encouraging you identifying as a reader? Because those are not the same thing. It's like, I know people who want to write books. I know people who want to be considered a writer and they're not the same people. Yeah. No, I'm not going to name names because I'm not starting any fights tonight. But (laughs) it's like aesthetics versus content, basically, isn't it? How how something is packaged versus what's actually inside it. Yeah. And I think on one hand, a lot of TikTokers would say, but I am talking about the content because they have read the book. Yeah. But on the other hand, you your publisher says, yeah, I had to do it in this package. I had to put in a video and I had to put, I include some, some dark chocolate and such and such. <laughs> I'm like, so what are we talking about here? <laughs> you know, exactly. So yeah, it's, 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 um, ultimately I'm for anything that gets people curious about books. Right. And honestly, I don't necessarily need I don't necessarily have to criticize TikTok for not going deep into the book. If they get the person to the cover, they're going to open the book. Yeah, and then identifying as a reader is better than not identifying as a reader. Absolutely. So I, you know, ultimately it's all for the good of books and books could use some good. How is, you've got one book left in the trilogy, don't you? Mm-hmm. That's still yeah. to come out. It's, mm-hmm. Is that the end of this year or next year? Um, Next year. Next year. Where's... No, it would be would it be next? I can't remember now. I'm so stuck in writing. Oh, soon, let's say soon. I don't think hey, it actually has a release date. No, to be fair to, to no, be fair to both of us, no. how's that going? You're stuck in writing. Um, it's going really well, actually. Um, you know, the third one is called White Wing Dark Star, mm-hmm. and um, again, it's a perspective of another character. And I, I do love the idea of, again, different characters telling the same story. But Moonwish's story ended up being a good almost 200 years before Black Leopard even happens. Mm. And, um, you know, they're a lot of fun, um, clearly. I think, um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, I call them fantasy novels. In a lot of ways, they're kind of magical realism for me. 
Yeah. Did you have? Uh, a, did Did you know which, which what what each book would be when you started, or did you? No, I did didn't. That, you wrote, I you, I kind of had a, a clue midway through writing Black Leopard who would tell us the the um the second story. But as for the third one, I didn't know until I finished on this the second one. And what are the most fun parts of the writing process and what are the least fun parts? The, fun, the most fun part for me is the actual writing, actually. Um, God, no one ever says that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the, the, it, I, 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 it, I love it. I, the actual writing, the typing, to get the, the idea done on page. And, and um, for me, I am open enough that I'm still sometimes surprised by where my own stories go. And that, to me, is a lot of fun. The thing I absolutely hate doing is conceiving the idea. It's like the complete reverse of what Mark I know. What I, it, to say. It, 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 yeah, even though I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Um, one reason I think why I am not, I don't, I'm not under pressure from do I match these sales or follow the booker and so on, mm. is that I have enough pressure on my own. <laughs> so like, what am I going to write next? Because I never remember the process of beginning a book. I remember ending them. Mm. I never remember beginning them. And I keep going, oh, man, I forgot how this is hard. <laughs> I don't like this at all. <laughs> I guess it's kind of, you know, everyone kind of compares writing to birth. A lot of women say they forget how painful birth was. And that's mm -hmm. why they're able to do it again. I, I Certainly for me, coming up with, 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 with stories um, yeah. and the, the beginning process, um, figuring out whose story it is, mm -hmm. um, what voice it should be in. Is it third person, second, first? Um, and I I don't have an efficient way of doing this. All I can do is keep writing until I go, this isn't working, mm -hmm. and start over. And this might be a slightly brutal question, given that you're in or coming to the end of an enormously long and ambitious trilogy. Any mm -hmm. idea? What, have, you, have you got something lined up for after that? Oh, yeah. Already. I know exactly. Oh, have you? Yeah. Well, are you allowed to, you allowed to say? I am. I mean, all I would say it's... it's um, it's about a, it's about a hidden uh, sort of not spoken about corner of Jamaican life, and I'm looking at it from the 1940s to now. Uh, and do we know what that hidden aspect is, or is that is I that am secret? So we're not telling you. You wish your luck, James. <laughs> I, I sort of knew that actually. I, I felt, it felt like a futile question, even even while I was asking it. <laughs> Marlon, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Well, there we have it. That was Marlon James. What a great guy to talk to. I, I must admit, I thought he was absolutely fantastic. I, I, shame, <laughs> shame uh, about him not liking cricket. That was his, his only black mark. Yeah, he's, he's so funny, so interesting. Read every book in the world, as far as I could see. Yeah, you really could talk to him about anything, yeah. and he'd have an opinion on it. Uh, that was a real. That was a real joy for me. I, I, we should say something about what we what we thought of the book. Let's say after all that, after all that crush <laughs> that we both got on him now, uh, let's say we both liked it. We're, 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 I really did. I think it's it's pretty much a masterpiece. Um, I suppose the only question is, is it a bit much? <laughs> um, and I think yes, it is a bit much, and that's the glory of it. Well, it's interesting. He does um, in other interviews uh, speak a lot to the fact that he didn't want a PG thirteen version of violence in the novel. He didn't want to sanitize the idea of um, whether it's physical or political violence in the reader's mind and um, by doing so make it somehow acceptable. Um, and for that reason, I really rate the novel too. I mean, it's, it is a bit much. Um, 
And I don't think it's something that you can sort of sit down and read in one big chunk, not least because there's so much information coming at you well, the, 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 all the time. That's right. And there was one interesting thing you said in that interview, really, was that he just kept going. Yeah. So, in fact, had the no- novel ended in the 70s with the Bob Marley assassination attempt, I don't think we would have thought, where's the 80s and 90s in New York and, yeah. and the crack epidemic? Um, What's happening in Cuba? <laughs> yeah, but, 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 but because he... Because of all that's there, just part of the sort of generosity of it and the scale of it, and those bits are terrific too. And I think he manages almost that with the violence as well, really. Because I mean, it starts off you think, "Blimey, this is a bit violent," <laughs> um, and it, maybe seven hundred pages later, you, you, you would be dull to it. But you're not because he still finds more and more sort of extreme and horrible mm. things going on, uh, um, which might make it sound grueling, but it's not quite that either, is it? It's a really sort of rollicking. <laughs> Uh, very much so. Well, to that point, James, who would you recommend it to? Um, well, I'd recommend it to anyone with a bit of time, because <laughs> it is long. Um, and also I'd recommend, I mean, you know, far bit for me to tell people how to read a book. But, um, I mean, sentence by sentence, it is great. Um, but I don't think it's a book to savour. I think you should just let the whole thing sort of like blow over you like a, some sort of tsunami, which it sort of is. And... Uh, uh, maybe that's just because that's the way I read it. I was I started off thinking, God, this sentence is good. That's good, and then I just abandoned myself to the whole green sweep of it, and and it was marvelous. Mm, I really agree. I think to me there was actually something slightly Dickensian about it in a weird way. And he does also talk a lot about being um, influenced by Greek classics, and there is something of the Odyssey about it. So for anyone who sort of loves getting particularly, I, I hate this phrase because it's become a cliche, but I guess it's cliched for a reason lost yeah. in a novel like fully stuck into something I, I a see, brief history is definitely for them i see your cliche and i raise you immersive uh, <laughs> it's, it, i've it's, been outdone <laughs> yeah you've been out cliched i mean it is it is it is immersive uh, but and you mentioned their greek stuff there's that but there's there's everything i, I you know i don't know whether we should recommend other people's podcasts uh, books <laughs> podcasts except it, i would do in this case because Marlon James does one with his editor, which is called Marlon and Jake Read Dead People, um, which does pretty much what it says on the, if we're sticking with cliches, metaphorical tin. Um, and what's clear from that is he's read more or less every book ever. I mean, not just the classics of all nationalities, although certainly them, um, but also comic books, thrillers. Uh, he even puts in a good word for the Little House on the Prairie series by Laura Ingalls Wilder at one point. Uh, he does say, boy, was that girl racist. <laughs> but, he, but he also says uh, that he liked what she wrote. Uh, one of his famous favourite crime writers is Ross MacDonald, who's quite big in the 50s and 60s. And he said what he liked about him was that the way crimes build, the way, the way things escalate. So it looks as though that, that's the worst crime that's happened. And then it escalates from there and there. And I think you could suggest that was an influence on the structure yes. as well. So a lot going on in that book and all of it great. And that's it for this week. If you haven't already followed the show, please do. And remember to leave us a rating. Uh, you can find us at thebookerprizes.com and on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Substack at The Booker Prizes. We'd love to hear what you think about the episode, Marlon James and A Brief History of Seven Killings. So please, please do get in touch. Uh, and until next week, when... Actually, as, as luck would have it, to be honest, we uh, are doing The Sellout by Paul Beatty, which won the Booker Prize the year after um, Marlon James, and uh, possibly not a book for the faint-hearted either, but uh, rather neat follow-on, Joe. We don't just throw these podcasts oh, together. so organised. <laughs> or sometimes it just all works out. Anyway, until then, goodbye. Bye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Benjamin Sutton, and the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy Super Yacht production for the Booker Prizes.